Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Getting Close with Mike Marbach podcast. I am, as always, Mike Marbach. This is lucky number seven. Lucky number seven. Mambo number five. And it is lucky because I've gotten to chat with uh, Mr. Rich Tallarico. We'll get to him in a second. Uh, let's see what's happening. What's happening? What's happening? I'm watching the All-Star game right now. Uh, the National League just put up a five spot. That's pretty awesome, especially considering it's off of Justin Beerlander, one of the premier pitchers of the American League. Um, kind of just makes me wish the Phillies were doing a little better because, I mean, even though it's only the first inning, there's still eight more after this. That's how baseball works, if you're unfamiliar. Um, I wish they were doing a little better because maybe we would get the World Series home field advantage. But right now, uh, we we have no advantage. We have absolutely we have zero advantages. There's zero advantages right now to being uh, on the Philadelphia Phillies, uh, except for that the first half is over. Hopefully, the second half will uh, something will happen. Something's got to happen. They got to shake up that team. I don't know what they got to do, but they got to fix it because it's fucking broken right now and it's driving me up a friggin' wall. Uh, and I hate saying that because I'm a huge Phillies fan. If anybody knows me that's listening, which Probably everybody that's listening does know me. Uh, it's it's pretty sad for me. It's a sad time. Uh, and it didn't stop me from making some Phillies cracks, some wise cracks at the Phillies' expense in my uh, Here's Johnny show on Sunday night. That was uh, a real good time. Uh, had on Bren- Brendan Kennedy doing some stand-up. That was a real good time. And then he also did a Guilty Pleasures uh, preview with uh, Roger Snare. Wild card, to say the least. Uh, he was fantastic, really fun. And also animal expert, Jana Savini, also of the Fit House Team King Friday, came by with, uh, with a snake. And it gave me salmonella. Uh, no, it didn't, but it could have. Um, if I didn't wash my hands and then touched food or licked my fingers, I don't know. But I could have gotten salmonella, and that would not have been pleasant. Uh, but yeah, some of my favorite jokes that I um, told about the Phillies. Uh, let's see. Uh, it was so hot. It was, it was so hot outside. How hot was it? I tell you, it was so hot that Jimmy Rollins was taking first pitches just to feel the breeze. hey That's funny for you non-Phillies sports fans because he is notorious for, sw- for swinging at the first pitch. Almost... 100% of the time, he will swing at the first pitch. But in this joke, he didn't because he just wanted to feel the breeze. You get it? All right. Uh, and the other one was a Karnak bit where Karnak, um, he predicts the answer and then the question is revealed later on. So the answer, here, here's, the, here's the bit. 100 degree days and the Phillies. And then he opens the envelope, pulls it out. The answer, or the question is, name two things that we will likely not see in October. Hi-yo! So there's, uh, there's, there's that. Uh, I enjoyed those jokes, even though they were at the expense of my team. And really hurt me to write them. Uh, anywho, yeah, Here's Johnny was fantastic. Um, All-Star Game's on right now. Moving on to Rich Tallarico. Rich Tallarico was in town at the Philly Improv Theater doing two improv workshops and a writing workshop, which uh, earlier reviews are in. Uh, the numbers 
have come in, and uh, the word is that uh, they were pretty great. I was in the first one, and I could I could tell you that it was pretty great. Uh, so everybody really enjoyed what he had to do. The writing one I hear was actually particularly awesome uh, for the for the people that were in that one because he kind of recreated the Key and Peel writers room, which was pretty awesome uh, for people to kind of experience that and uh, have have that sort of experience um, guide their work. Yes. Um, yeah, he's, he's a writer for Key & Peele right now. He's written for SNL, Saturday Night Live, for you acronymically challenged. I don't know if that's a word. Uh, and uh, Naked Trucker and T-Bone and Mad TV and The Tonight Show, which I was just kind of talking about, but only the one that he wrote for starred Jay Leno. Uh, he's improvised for the better part of 20 years with uh, um, Dazariski in LA and they, they of course travel from time to time from what I understand um, hope to catch them myself at some point um, so we talk a lot uh, as much as we could about his background in improv and sketch how he got the jobs that he got the different experiences working on places like on, uh, on jobs like SNL uh, or on Key and Peele uh, improv theory comes up a bit um, writing tips a bunch of stuff something to know is that I recorded this with my iPhone and I recorded it at an iHop. Uh, the first thing I, I would say about recording with your iPhone is that it can be done. It's awesome. Uh, it's a, I, I usually record all of these at my house uh, in my bedroom, my, my studio, um, and it's kind of annoying to have the people come here all the time. So the iPhone really open open up the possibilities. I can go anywhere and do this thing. So it's awesome. Uh, and there's even a special microphone which I'm going to get, which will make it even uh, easier to do that. Um, but the the iHop, I was a little worried about the sound quality. Uh, so you may have to listen a little bit. Um, but overall, the the sound is is great. You're going to hear uh, some different things in the the background. You're probably going to hear some music. You'll probably hear uh, you know just your typical iHop sounds. Uh, your little IHOP, typical IHOP ambiance, ambiance. Um, but you should be able to hear everything just fine. Uh, and you should be hearing everything because he has a lot of really, really great shit to say. So without further ado, please listen as I get close with Mr. Rich Tallarico. Well, thank you for, uh, for sitting down with me. Uh, just so everybody knows, we are at an IHOP right now, so you will hear some music playing underneath. You may hear some clinging and clanging of, uh, of some silverware and some plates and maybe some chewing, uh, but that's how it is. Rich Tellerico is the, the guest. Uh, Rich, thank you for, uh, for agreeing to do this Mike, for me. Mike, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be on the show. Yeah. Uh, well, you, have, you probably haven't heard any of these before. Uh, I doubt that anybody outside of Philly has. I'm a big fan. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you've got them all. Uh, I go into go pretty much in depth with people, mm-hmm. so I like to start at the beginning for the most part. I know um, that could mean a couple things, but uh, how would how exactly did you get into comedy? Um, well, I kind of uh, started in uh, I guess in high school was my first experience. I had a uh, I had an art teacher uh, named Mr. Tallarico, although he spelled it wrong. He spelled it with an E, uh, T-A-L-E-R-I-C-O, and uh, I spell it T-A-L-A-R-I-C-O. So we're not related, but um, he's a pretty cool guy. He's like an old hippie who, um, you know, at the time he he owned a nightclub, and I had 
done like a little stand-up at the high school. I opened up for a band. Some friends of mine were in a band. They were going to be playing a show at the high school. And they said, uh, well, why don't you uh, do, tell some jokes before we go on? Yeah. And that was my really my first uh, experience, you know, doing something that was strictly, you know, comedy with me. And I, I basically just, you know, told some jokes that I kind of knew and made up a couple. And yeah. um, I did like three or four minutes. And anyway, then I, I talked to my high school art teacher about it. And I knew he had a nightclub. And I asked him if I could do it at his nightclub and he goes I love it let's do it and you know I was 16 and he put me up at his nightclub and you know I'm sure I was terrible but you know he was sweet he let me open for a couple of bands that he had there and that was in Utica New York okay. not, not too far from here um, and that kind of got me got me going oh thank you Kitch is anything else right now okay, no we're all set all right I'll be back if you need me just call me all right, okay, thank, thank you. you that was our waiter yes um so I started doing stand-up, and I, I did it at a couple of other clubs in Utica. There was one where they had like a weekly stand-up show, and we would sneak into that because we were too young to be in there. And uh, the guy that owned the club would host it, and uh, you know he, he hated doing it, and you can kind of tell. And I ended up talking him into letting me hosting the show. So I would like bring up the comics and come up with a little material. Um, I mean, I can go on. This just took years of my life. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah. anyway, so start kind of started in stand up, and I was doing like local theater in you know in the central New York area, and then I um, heard about Second City, and uh, that was really like I think the big push for me. And I moved to Chicago in '92, uh, okay. and uh, had my first improv class with Stephen Colbert. Um, which is just a great first teacher to get. I've heard of, I've heard of Stephen Colbert. Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure what he's up to now. No, but. I don't know. Yeah, I've seen him in a little while. Yeah. Um, but yeah, moved to Chicago and I fell into it with a great crowd. You know, there's a lot of a lot of people. Um, you know, Steve Carell was there at the time. Uh, Tina Fey. This is before Amy Poehler. You know, okay. Matt Besser. Yeah. Um, Ian Roberts. Oh, that's before the what became the Upright Citizens Brigade got there. Yes, before I was, that they formed. Or well, so. they were forming at. Uh, Improv Olympic right. in the early 90s. Okay. And I was in an early UCB show before Amy Poehler was in UCB. Okay. This was, it was me and Matt Besser. I mean, it wasn't me. I was like a supporting character. But, sure. but it was Ian Roberts and um, it was a show that yeah, Besser directed. Uh, it was a show that Besser directed and it was, um, you know, it was like a futuristic kind of a show. And, you know, Del Close was our teacher and Sharna Halpern. I mean, just like a lot of great... Uh, people around, okay. you know, at the time. Yeah. Well, you said that you your first real comedy experience was in high school. Uh, was there anything leading up to that point that you, you were like, this is what I want to do, and then you finally did it in high school? Yes. Well, I think the reason that I, this band in high school had asked me to open for them, I had done some musicals. I did the high school musicals. And, uh, what was uh, what were some of the musicals? I did uh, I did Bye Bye Birdie. Okay. And I played Mr. McAfee, and he had a big comic moment. They were on the Ed Sullivan show. Is that the? That's not the Paul Lynn. It is, is the, the Paul, Paul Lynn part. part. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And in the in the play, he's really against uh, you know rock and roll, and I think he doesn't want he doesn't like Conrad Birdie. I'm trying, I mean, it's been years, so I barely remember. I mean, obviously I don't need to re-explain the plot of it. But there was a big comic moment for him when he's on Ed Sullivan. He kind of freezes or gets starstruck or something, and I got a, a laugh. And I remember feeling yeah. like, oh, that was kind of fun. Yeah. You know, I'd like to do some more of that. Yeah. Because, you know, prior to that, I hadn't really responded to anything that had happened in school. Okay. You know. Cool. Uh, so then you 
you're in Chicago, uh, and you start, what was it, the first school that you did, or that you, you was, uh, it was I.O., or is it Second City? Well, actually, Second City was my first experience, um, October 18th, 1992, you know the Sunday. Exact yeah. date, why, why the, uh, is it just because it was that memorable of a day, or was there some historical event that day? Well, I, I don't know why I remember the date that well. I, I think it was, um, I remember I met my, one of my best friends, he's still my buddy now, an actor named Bill Cott. And Bill is a character actor, and he's done tons of films, and he's uh, on a lot of TV shows. Um, he's on, you know, just works a ton. Um, and we were both an hour early for the class. Yeah, please. We were both an hour early for the class. So it was like, you know, we became fast comedy friends. Okay. Uh, but yeah, Second City was my first experience, and I didn't do well. I didn't do well because we, I was taking a class from Colbert called Improv for Actors. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I was 19 at the time, and the class was meant to prepare you to audition for the conservatory program. Yeah, I had listened to a few different podcasts, and they said that like around that time, it wasn't what it is now. There was there was something that there was some training center that they called something else. I can't remember what it was. Well, now there was a different training program, and I'm not quite sure how all that worked. To be honest with you, okay. I, I only knew that among the people that I was talking to, that the Second City program was the preferred program. Mm -hmm. There was also a program called the Players Workshop of the Second City. And Steve, um, who was in the class with me yesterday, was was in... uh, Yes, okay. he was in the, um, the Players Workshop. Now, I never I had no experience with the Players Workshop at all, but it was I, I didn't understand what it was. I really didn't even know what it was, but it was called the Players Workshop yeah. of the Second City. Yeah. So somebody had the name Second City as well, and yeah. they were also teaching classes. I'm not really sure how, yeah. how okay. it went. Uh, but the classes we were taking were from the performers at Second City okay. at the time. So you're in with uh, Stephen Colbert doing Improv for Actors. Yes. And, and how's that going? Well, we took an eight-week class. I went through with my friend Bill. And uh, the class was, uh, you know, eight weeks. And I really felt like I was doing well. I felt like I was getting good responses in the class. I felt like good encouragement from Stephen. And the culmination of the class is this audition where you have to, you know, do a scene. Um, and I, I had a horrible scene went very poorly and I did not pass the audition which meant like I couldn't I wasn't good enough to study and that's basically what you're doing you're auditioning to study yeah um, I think this was at a time when Second City actually filtered people out because now yeah. it seems like well why would they yeah but anyway they, re- they and then so then Bill went on without me my good buddy Bill went on without me and they encouraged me Colbert encouraged me to retake the class, and Martin Demott was running the uh, the training at the time, mm-hmm. and he encouraged me to um, retake Colbert's class. So I did. I went back through Colbert's class, another eight weeks, another group of people, and it was interesting because it was me with a whole new group, another twenty people. We all went through another eight weeks, had another audition, and and this time everybody but me got in. So it was two times in a row that everybody but me got in. And I was really frustrated, and I went to Colbert, and I said, well, what should I do? And he said, you know, I was at Improv Olympic. Go study with Sharna and Dell. And Improv Olympic at the time was called Improv Olympia because they were having problems with the Olympic Committee. And the Olympic Committee, I guess, did not want anyone using the word Olympic for any product. So Sharna called it Improv Olympia at the time, and I took classes with her, and there was only three classes at the time. It was 
Level one was Sharna. There was three levels. Level one was Sharna. Everybody took that. Level two was either Kevin Dorf or Miles Straw. And level three was Dell. So I took my first class with Sharna. I took Kevin Dorf for my second class. And I would go on to work with Kevin at Second City, you know, years later. And uh, my third class with Dell. And then I retook Dell one more time. And I also worked with Dell on a couple of uh, shows in Chicago as well. Okay. Um, and I think the experiences and the, the shift for me, what was different between the way Second City taught things and the way Improv Olympia was teaching things, Second City was teaching things to me, my impression of it was they were teaching things as rules, where you felt like, no, these are the no's. Don't do this, don't do that, don't ask questions. You know, and I felt like there was a game show buzzer that was going to go off or some yeah. trap door that would open yeah. if we didn't do it right. And um, Improv Olympic, Olympia was teaching it as things to do. I felt like they were giving you things to do, and that felt, that felt more open for me. And that changed things for me, and then I ended up auditioning for Second City's training center again, uh, and I got in this time, um, and I, I went through the program, which was like a six or, I think a five or six level, I think it was a five level program, and now they've added so many levels. Yeah. I think they needed a new roof at one point and decided to add a bunch of levels. Yeah, yeah it's funny uh, hearing <laughs> I.O. had three levels. When I was there, there was six, and I think there's seven now. Mm-hmm. And that's just over two years that I've been, three years that I've been out of there. Well, Second City also added a levels A, B, C, D, yeah, and E. Yeah, yep. yep. That, and I think that's when they needed a new roof. I think that's <laughs> what that was. And they needed, a, you know, to go, you know, before you get into the, the main training program. What kind of uh, teacher was Stephen Colbert? Um, well, it's interesting because I think he's, he taught me things that I didn't even realize until a year or two ago that I am, I'm still teaching. Um, he was a wonderful teacher. He brought a lot of love and energy to the class. I mean, still can remember moments in the class. He was playful. Um, you know, he would often participate with us and you know, get us energized, you know, he wasn't like sitting in the back of the room smoking a cigarette, (laughs) you know, falling asleep, he was really kind of in there with us. Yeah, there was no phones to check. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. No phones to check back then. This is before there were phones. Um, And, yeah, but he was great, he was a great teacher, and I feel really lucky that I got, you know, the small window that he was teaching there that I got to study with him. Yeah. And uh, and we just got back uh, a lot of people from the Dell Close Marathon, uh, and I don't know too many people. Like I know Steve, had, Steve Klein, I've had some experience with him, and, and now you. I mean, outside of some people in Chicago that I've talked to, but what, is there anything you can say about him as a person or as an instructor, Dell Close? Yeah, um, he was a great resource, and I kind of wish I had taken more advantage of it at the time because when you know when I was studying with him I was a teenager and I, I just thought he was a crazy old guy which he was um, but he had all the principles that Dell gave us I still feel like are, are with me in, in a lot of ways um, he often said you treat each other like geniuses and poets treat the audience like geniuses and I've had many experiences in, on TV shows where they'll tell you to dumb it down you know, and yeah. I don't like to do that, and I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to honor what you know that gives you. Oh, just make a show. Yes, thank you. Um, 
So yeah, great, great teacher and a great instructor, and you know, definitely pushed the limits of things. We we did a show called, or the family did a show called Dynamite Funness, which was, um, and they had another show before that called Three Mad Rituals, and these were forms that yeah, dealt directly. We know, we know Three Mad Rituals in Philly. There's a group, uh, King Friday, that does that every Fringe show. Mm-hmm. They do the yeah. movie. They, they're, 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 yeah, they're doing a movie. I think the deconstruction and a Harold. I think. Yeah. Something I'm like. trying to remember. I don't remember yeah. what the three. Four. I know the third one was the movie. Yeah. And Jeff Richmond, who's the musical guy for Thirty Rock, he's married to Tina Fey now. Okay. Um, he did the music for it, and it was just an amazing show. Yeah. You know, we have because people really hadn't seen things like that. The things that were predominant in a lot of the improv experiences were short form, short form games, yeah. you know, games that, uh, you know, we're all familiar with, the Whose Line is an Anyway style games, yeah. and here was Dell with these very deep and wide reaching improv forms. Yeah. So there was a form called Three Med Rituals, and I understudied that, and so did Craig Kikowski, and Craig, Craig was understudying a lot of the family shows as well. But and they the would family do is shows. Uh, it was a team with Besser and yeah, and it was originally Polar. called the Victims Family. No, Polar was no not Polar? that one. No, okay. And uh, it's gonna boy, I'm gonna have to like get out my yearbook <laughs> to remember who was exactly on the team. But I think it was Besser, Neil Flynn, um, Ian, Ali Farnakian. I think Pete Holmey was on the team. Um, Ian, if I didn't say okay. that, I said that already. And they and were the first ones to do that, that movie for him, right? I With believe Dill? so. I yeah. believe so. I might, might be going on a limb and saying that, but I believe so. And is that where a lot of the uh, scene painting ideas started coming out? Or is that is that a technique that's been around for, for a while that you knew? That's a good question. I don't know. I'm not as much a historian, and I, I wouldn't stake my claim on saying where, where things originated, but... Certainly, a lot of what you know, what's going on in long form, I think, grew out of Chicago in the early '90s. I think that's a safe, <laughs> yeah. a safe thing to say. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I think the last thing we were talking about, we just took a break to uh, chow a little bit, was Del Close. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any other quick bits that you could say about a? Uh, about him as a as an instructor or person, or any fun weird stories? Boy, I really have to like. Dig back. It's been a while since I thought about Dell. This was 20 years ago. This was the beginning of everything. I don't know. I guess if you give me a more specific area, uh, just like wild Dell stories. There weren't a ton of those for us. You know, we were his we were his students, so he kind of appeared once a week, and you know, we would see him in class. Um, he was a pretty hard teacher, I know that, and somehow he was able to get away with being a hard teacher. I know I can feel, you know, at times really irritated, you know, with myself if I feel like I come down too hard on students. He was able to do it and still keep people encouraged somehow. Um, I remember him, you know, he did, he did one time harsh on someone so much that he kind of, uh, the guy never came back. Wow. You know, he told them that the fellow improvisers had the displeasure of improvising around him. <laughs> and uh, the guy didn't come back. Uh, and this is in a, a level three? Uh, yes, three? this would have been uh, a level three. Thanks. Yeah. No close. Okay. Um, what about Sharna? What did you think of Sharna as a teacher? And some of this stuff, depending on what you say, may not <laughs> sit through. We'll see. Um... You know, I think Sharna is a great first-level teacher. She's very welcoming, and she puts, she gives you the sense of, like, wow, I can do this. 
Because it's intimidating if you watch a show and you see like these people doing really amazing, you know, kind of acrobatic things. Um, it feels intimidating, but you know, you go through a class with her, and I still remember my first class with her. Um, we did a game called the Cocktail Party Game. Do you guys play Cocktail Party? Yeah, I had Charner for my 101, too, yeah. So she probably did that with you, yeah, too. Yeah. Um, so, you know, she makes it instantly accessible, and you see, like, oh, I see what this is about, kind of. <laughs> yeah. You know, and she, I think we did uh, Hot Spot with her. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, I think she's a really good first-level teacher, and she also directed us in something, now that I'm thinking back on it. Actually, a pretty interesting show called Strap Heads, which was a, a, a mask show. It was my only experience with masks, but it was pretty pretty powerful. Yeah. Um, we had uh, these theater masks that were, um, they covered like most of your face, kind of like Batman is yeah. how they looked. Yeah. Um, and they all had different personas in them. And we had a little bit of a primer workshop from a Commedia dell'arte performer. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of went over some of the stereotypical professore, uh, harlequin, you know, all the different types and we kind of did a mishmash but we we used the masks and Sharna was the director of that um, so she's a talented director she's a talented you know, teacher yeah yeah um, she uh, I guess 20 years ago her, her hearing was probably a little better than it is because when I had her in 101 she would interrupt scenes asking what what was that like, you know just kind of, right. yeah so it's, well I think she she dated guys that were in rock bands I think that was her thing really yes um I hope I'm not saying anything I shouldn't, but uh, no, and I think I think that's where her hearing kind of went bad. But I know she has a, she has a hearing problem. Yeah, yeah. Were the dogs running around? There were dogs. Yes, yeah. Gracie was the first dog who would come on stage during shows. Yep. You know, she'd walk in and the dog would just jump up there, and it became an accepted thing. I mean, amazing that you know Improv Olympic grew as it did with those kind with of things going on. <laughs> yeah, the circus. Uh-huh. <laughs> And then uh, poor Gracie lost her jaw at one point. Ah, and she's just like very, finally got put down. And then she has another dog, but I, I've, I've been away from Chicago for 10 years. Okay. So, you know, I don't know too much about Sharna or what's Sharna going on. Sharna or her dogs. Or her dogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all right. It's not about the dogs. Uh, okay, so you teach a lot, right? Or, or yes. how often do you teach now? Well, I coach, I have a, a, in my garage uh, in Burbank, I coach a few groups on the weekends. Beautiful, Burbank, California. That's right, I'm I'm in Burbank, (laughs) uh, on Alameda. (laughs) Um, Yes, I coach a few teams out there, and I teach a class once or twice a year. Okay. Um, Were you teaching when you were in Chicago years ago? Yes, and I taught for Second City, and I taught for Improv Olympic, but I didn't... I found that I wanted to say things that weren't in the curriculum. Yeah. You know, I wanted to talk about things that made it easier for me because I'm, I'm not, I'm not that quick on my feet. I, I feel like I need to really get my feet under me and understand, you know, what's my point of view. I need to understand some things. I'm not that good. I, I just embarrassed myself doing a show at UCB in LA where some friends asked me to sit in on the show where we, where it's musical. I was like, why did I agree to do this? Horrible, horrible for me. Um, so I, I like to, I, I'm very deliberate, and I really like to, you know, feel like we've, you know, climbed into this thing in a solid way. So I need to, um, you know, I wanted to make a class for people like myself and just teach the things that made sense to me. And, you know, everybody, every teacher, 
Oh, there's a Jill Bernard quote that someone just told me. Did you tell me that? Uh, maybe. Everyone is... What? Yeah, that's the one. What yeah. is it? Everyone is their own school of improv. Right. So, I, and I think that's kind of exciting, you know. So I took the things that worked for me and, you know, made a class. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's... Uh, is that what you're kind of tour around doing now? Yes, yes. And, you know, bringing it, being lucky enough to bring it to places like here and Austin and, you know, Boston and... Everything that and, uh, with Yeah, that. I was going to say. <laughs> Lost in. Uh, okay, so that is the, what, what the class is called, what again? It's called The Way of Improv. The Way of Improv. Now, I don't want to give too much, I mean, everybody that's going to be listening to this was either in the workshop or is living in Philly, uh, so we're not going to be people in New York where you haven't taught this yet, they're going to be like, listening to the podcast and think, oh, now I don't need to take it. Well, I, t- uh, I, did, I do teach it at the Pit in okay. New York, I've taught it there a few times, um, Ali was a guy that I worked with quite a bit in Chicago, and we were in a touring company together at Second City. So mm-hmm. I have taught it around. We can talk about it. Okay. okay. Uh, well, the, the one of the main focuses, if not the main focus, of the workshop is object and environment work, which uh, is apparently huge to you. Why is that? Um, because I believe that uh, I think object work is the secret weapon of improv. Mm-hmm. It... it, it uh, it has so many benefits, and it, it floods information into the scene. Um, if I've made no object work choices, um, I've you know I've given the scene none of those gifts. And you know the other way to say it is a picture is worth a thousand words. So why wouldn't you want a thousand words out of the way at the start of your scene? So as soon as you start touching objects, whatever they are, they inform who you are. They inform who you are. So if I if I decide to start, uh, you know. We had one in the class the other day. Somebody started polishing silver as an object work choice. Mm-hmm. Well, that made it very easy to discover, oh, well, there's a mansion behind that person, and they're a servant. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's like the object work really opens up, um, opens things up. And, you know, we, we go over that in the class, of course, but all the different benefits of it. Mm-hmm. But the, the overarching, I think, thing of the class, uh, idea of the class is uh, what I'll call plotless improv. Um, which is a little bit of a tricky word, and I think I might have to replace that word plotless because plot exists in all shows. It's just an arrangement of order of the way things happen. But improvisers know what I mean when I say, you know, you're in a plotty show, a yeah. plot-driven show. Those are the shows where you have, like, oh, we still have to get the diamonds off the moon. You know? <laughs> um, but I love those scenes. <laughs> trying to put a character, a character focus um, and making it just about the characters and, and fulfilling their experience. But the... You know, instead of flamethrowing the information into the scene where someone invents it, because I really feel like a lot of improv is invention. Yeah. A lot of the improv that you see, it's like somebody was off in the back line cooking up a premise. And rather than, you know, and they come out and they, they flamethrow the scene with all the information in the scene. They say, you know, Arby's employees get in here. You know, somebody's been stealing the horsey sauce. Well, no one says Arby's employees get in here, you know. <laughs> But it forces the improvisers to speak unnaturally and do this flamethrower thing where they have to cook up the whole premise. I've even had teachers say to me, you've got to have the who, what, and where in your first line of dialogue. And I disagree with that. I think for me, I I prefer instead of the flamethrower approach to starting a scene, the two sticks rubbing together method to starting a scene where each person makes an environment gift and from that we kind of discover. Uh, what's going on and I think for to really be improvisation there must be discovery mm-hmm. that's what the audience laughs at are discoveries mm-hmm. they probably will laugh at invention too if it's yeah, funny yeah, enough right. and you can get away with being clever and funny but I, I, I find it more fulfilling more rewarding and more exciting 
to truly try to live in discovery, which is yeah. which is challenging. It's not easy. But. Yeah, it's not easy to invent something that works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just ask Thomas Alva Edison. <laughs> oh, Thomas Alva Edison. Uh, okay, you talked about in the workshop. I remember uh, like a moment where object environment work started kind of clicking for you. Uh, it was during a show with a tightrope. Oh right, yeah. Could, could you go into that? Oh sure. We were we were uh, doing a show. This was in Chicago at Improv Olympia. And the, we were a uh, like an acrobat family. We were like the flying pepperoni family or something like that. And we were going to attempt a, um, a high wire act that had not been attempted. You know, the, every family member of the pepperoni family was there watching us attempt this. Everyone who had attempted it before was watching it in wheelchairs. Like it was the most dangerous high wire act of all time. And we really took our time um, creating the you know the height of the wire and then. As performers, we all walked on the wire, and you know, were being affected by it, and you know, jiggling around up there on the wire, and we were all kind of clinging to each other. There was like eight of us out there on a high wire, and uh, you know, at one point we all teetered to the left and right like we were going to fall, and the audience, you know, went, <gasps> and they all gasped, and they all, you know, took a deep breath. And I remember that being a very galvanizing moment for me because, you know. We were on some dumpy stage in front of a drum set, you know, and the cash register's ringing and there's beer being spilled all over the place, yet we were able to engage them enough that they, for a moment, were afraid as an audience. And that's something that, you know, movies will spend millions or hundreds of millions of dollars to get that reaction out of an audience. Um, and they're lucky if they get it. And they're lucky if they get it. So I think it's really powerful to be able to engage an audience in a way that they can be lost in the story. Just as much as they would be lost in a multi-million dollar movie, I think the object work, uh, you know, being a key to that, you know, it engages the audience, pulls everybody in. That was that was a big moment for me, and, you know. Okay. Uh, now, in, in teaching, is there any tips that you have for any instructors, uh, how to deal with students, um, whether, let's say there's a newer instructor, uh, is there anything that you can say to that person who's just starting out as an instructor teaching improv uh, on how to, I don't want to say maybe what kind of instructor to be, but anything that would kind of help them find their style or... Well, I know from my own experience, I can say that as a teacher... I've, I learned as I went, and I'm still learning as I go. I mean, what you really are embarking on when you're teaching, I think, for me, is a lesson. And I'm, I'm the one taking notes. Yeah. I mean, I'm always, I'm always writing as I'm uh, teaching because I'm trying to get, get to my point, you know, more clearly. You know, yeah. so it's, it's like an, it's an evolving thing where you're just constantly trying to get to your point. You know, what, what am I trying to say about this? And how do I boil it down to as a simple approach as possible? Um, which is where I got to today. But I, I, you know, I've been doing it for 20 years, and I feel like I'm just starting. Just, just, just the tip of the iceberg. And I'm excited to see, because I know I remember what I was teaching when I first started teaching and the things that were important to me. Um, and they weren't as cohesive. The ideas weren't as clear. It was more like loose exercises, so it would be like more of a workout. I feel like I'm able to deliver a little bit more of a complete thing. Yeah. And because I've been working with specific groups sometimes for a year or two or three, I can kind of go on that journey with them, and we, we together discover it. So the teacher is, is, is a student. 
the teacher is as much a student as the students. Um, I think the important thing is to just try to work on, you know, learning yourself what you're trying to say. Yeah. And you, every, you know, every, everybody has something to say in this work, and you know, the more you do it, um, hopefully, the more you have to say, or the more profound thing you have to say, hopefully. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and you perform regularly with uh, Dazariski. Irregularly. We Irregularly? Perform. No, we, yeah, we perform a couple times a month over at UCB. Um, and we LA? also travel, yeah, at okay. UCB LA. And we travel quite a bit. Um, we brought our show around to different different theaters as well. And that's Bob Dassey. Yep, Bob Dassey. Greg Kukowski. And me, yeah. And you, yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, we have a website, dasariski.com, okay. just like it sounds. What is, what is the stuff? I haven't seen the show. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd like to. Uh, well, maybe next time you guys are in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, for sure. What what kind of style of show, what style of improv would you say Dazariski is? Well, just before I jump into that, there are we, I have posted a few of our shows on my website, which okay. is richtellerico.com, and okay. you can see a good number of the Dazariski shows. Okay. Um, the Dazariski formed uh, out of a group called Trio, which was Stephanie Weir, Bob Dassey, and myself. Yeah, Stephanie Weir of Mad TV. Of Mad TV. I saw them a couple yeah. years ago. Uh, they were doing Weird, Weird Ass. Ass. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's great. Okay, so that formed out of that. Yeah, with the th- Bob had put a group together on Sunday nights at Improv Olympic in Chicago, and Stephanie and I would go over because we were doing Second City together at the time. We would go over. Bob would pick us up, and we'd race over to I/O and do an eleven o'clock show. Um, and it was an hour-long show, and we kind of, I think, found a form there, the three of us. And we did it, I would say, on and off for about a year. Um, and then I think Steph and Bob broke up. They were dating at the time. And then uh, we asked Craig to join us. And then Steph and Bob got back together, and uh, we just kept doing the other show. Yeah. And we were only going to do four shows. We, we, like, arranged for four shows, and we were trying to come up with a name... And uh, we come up with the idea of using three letters from each of our last name. I'm going into a little bit of a preamble here. Yeah. Um, Let it out. And uh, so that's where the name came from. It's Bob Dassey, D-A-S, and the A-R-I is my the middle of my name, Tellerico, and then Ski is obviously the end of Kukowski. Yeah. Um, and we, I think that the, what the nut of our show is, it's a character exploration at its core. It's, you know, and that's when it really works better for us. We've done very plot-driven shows, um, but my opinion of it is it's a, it's like a, it's a 45 minute to an hour long, um, long form show. We usually start with one scene, and we let that scene kind of be the, you know, the, like the, almost like an opening. You know, all the all the whole all the information for the show is contained in that scene. Okay. So whoever we meet, whatever we learn about them, then we explore that. You know, from those people. Sure. But I think that it works best when it's a character exploration. Like, well, what's most important to that guy? How do we put him through hell? How do we give him what he needs? And we usually follow like two or three characters. Usually, you know, our main characters. Okay. Um, but if we can't go deep into character. Um, the other thing that really helps us is if we go wide. And this is an idea that I think I got from a Robert McKee book called Story, which is really great. I think just as any, any storyteller wants to read this book. Very good book. Um, but his idea, too, is you can't, if, you, if you can't go deep into character, you, you, can, you can go wide. You know, and go wide with the story. And we do that at Dessariski a lot, if that makes sense. So if we don't get deep into the characters, we go wide and we meet many characters of the world. 
Okay. And that becomes that becomes sufficient. It seems to fill the glass, you know. Yeah. If we can, if we can go deep, then it, we mostly focus on these three characters and we get into their lives specifically. If we're not penetrating, you know, who these guys are as people, we tend to go wide and just create a really fun big world. For example, we would do a show where we were three wedding DJs, you know, and we never really delve deeper than just them being the three wedding DJs. So once you know that. 10, 15 minute mark shows up, if we're not going deep into who these guys are as people, we just start showing who else is at the wedding. So then we cut around all the wedding. We become, you know, the, the guys doing coke in the bathroom, the people at the tables, the bride and groom, the valets out front, um, you know, the cooks in the kitchen, the waiters. So going wide is another thing that really seems to help us. But, you know, worth it to check out if you do want to see us. There's a few of our shows that are... Uh, Posted a decent, somewhat decent quality okay. on, the, on my uh, website. Do these, uh, do the other two guys? Do you feel? I guess you would. I mean, you clearly enjoy playing with them. Uh, do you feel that they kind of complement uh, that style that you're talking about? That, that kind of uh, discovery. I think so, but I think for us, it's more just built in at this point. We've been doing it together for so long that it's really impossible for it not to happen. And the thing is, like, I know, I know Craig and Bob so well, I've been playing with them so long. Um, we've been friends since, like, 93. And uh, Craig and I did Second City together for many years. Um, I've been on a, a, a good number of shows with Craig and Bob, a lot of different forms over the years. So what's really wonderful with them is this, this shorthand, you know, that I'm sure you experience with yeah, your sure. own people you play with a lot. Well, after after you know almost twenty years of playing together, you just know. Yeah. As soon as Craig starts to pull out that chair to sit down, I go. He's cutting to the office. Right. I'm going to be the principal. Yeah. He's the student because I yeah. I know I know what he's thinking. Yeah. Sometimes we're wrong. And that's the the, the, the group mind that you're talking yes. about. Uh, that you talk about in the workshops. That's such a. Um, uh, great concept in improv. It has a tendency sometimes to be a little improv mumbo jumbo y, um, but it's definitely there. Um, how do you, what do you, what do you think develops that outside of just working together for as long as you have? Um, well, the ultimate idea I think with group mind is that the players have to bend for the common good. So you kind of have to forget about what you might need or want and just serve the show. So becoming a servant of the show really helps. You go, well, what does this need? You know, what needs to happen now? You know. Yeah. Um, but there was an idea that um, the show Trio, I think, came out of, which is the liner notes from that Miles Davis album, Kind of Blue. Okay. Uh, Bill Evans, the piano player on that album, and that was a very heavily improvised uh, album. Okay. Um, he, you read those liner notes and you know it really seems like he's describing what we do and he is he's talking about improvisation for, for, for music um, and how the players must bend for the common good it's something like that you know you must bend for the common result so I think what helps that is obviously you know practice practice uh, supporting you know something I say in the workshop a lot is make the other guy look right just make him look right don't worry about what what's important you know what I have to do just make him yeah. appear like he's a genius yeah genius and poet right uh, okay uh, quick other thing about improv before I want to talk just a bit about sketch I don't want to take, take all day with you here that's okay uh, and that's uh, and we talked a little bit about this before uh, you talk a lot about discovery in improv over premise 
Uh, and we had. That's fine. Um, we, we just had Besser, Matt Besser out. You said you had Matt Besser as a teacher. Uh, how would you describe the difference between what your thinking is and what he tends to go after? Well, Besser was my coach in, you know, in 94, 95. So it's been a long time since I've worked with Matt, but I've known him a long time. Yeah. Um, I think what, you know, and I don't want to speak for Matt, but I know he's an adherent of the game. Yeah. You know, the game is what it's about for them and discovering the game. And I, I'll call the, I'll say that I've had many scenes where, you know, I come off stage and I go, oh, great scene. Who were we? You know, or great scene. Where were we? And I feel like the game takes away a lot of the, the onus of character. It's more about something happening yeah. in this moment. You know, something is uh, is amiss, something's awry, but we never go beneath the mask that we create. And I'm more interested in getting underneath the mask of the character. So I don't want us to serve the plot, we want the plot to serve character. So everything that happens on stage is just a chance for us to reveal more about ourselves as character. Going back to that book, Story, which was a big influence on me, obviously, um, character is choice. Choice under pressure. That's what character is. Everything you choose to do, how you do what you do is who you are. You know? So choice is you know, important. And I feel like if you're playing the game, your choices may be ridiculous. You know, people end up, you know, things get heightened rather very quickly. People do crazy, insane things very quickly, and that may not be, you know, true. You may not really be working on discovering the character. You're kind of playing the game, and you don't get into the character as much. It's kind of an ab abstract concept, and I feel like I'm not. I'm not explaining it well. You're doing okay. Doing just fine. Um, All right. So there's a. Uh, especially these days, the last few years, last five, ten years, uh, increasing number of improvisers getting involved with uh, other arts uh, as a result of the, the improv that they've done, uh, whether it's writing for late-night shows uh, or sketch shows or getting on the SNL. I mean, that, that's picked up a lot, too, uh, yourself included. Uh, what was your, your first job that you got uh, as, a, as, a, as a writer, comedy writer? Well... I mean, technically, I'm trying to remember, I, we had worked, I'd worked for Second City in Chicago, and, you know, once I got involved there, like, oh, well, even getting involved there, it took me many years. I feel like I do have to mention that. Um, so once I did get into the training center, just going back to what we talked about before, I, I, got out of, I got out of, you know, I finished the training, and then I auditioned to be in the touring company. And I did not make the audition. I failed the audition. And then a year went by, and I was doing other shows in Improv Olympic. I went back and re-auditioned for Second City again a second time, and I failed it a second time. Then I went back and did more at Improv Olympic, and went back to audition in Second City a third time. And at this time, a lot of my friends had been hired, Tina Fey, Kukowski, um, you know, the family, I think. Some of those guys had been hired. Uh, and after my third audition in Second City, which I also failed, I was like, well, Second City doesn't want me. And I, well, I had kind of put them out of my out of my mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm taking a little bit of a detour no, here. Go ahead. I want Take to get it. there. Um, and then I, I, just, I did a stand-in work on a horror film called Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer Part 2. Part two. Okay. Part two. Um, which was a straight-to-video, I believe, uh, movie. Um, and somewhere during the process of 
working on that movie as a stand-in, Second City called me and hired me. So I'd already kind of given up on them, and then they called me back. So I think Second City was my first, you know, really official writing job where somebody paid me to write something. Um, and, you know, you'd write sketches together. And then to supplement your income, because the, the job pays so little when you first start, and even when you've been there for a few years, it's not anything great. Is that the is that the touring or is yes? Okay, the there were three okay. national touring companies when I was going through it. I still think that's the case, um, and they would be in different parts of the country. And there was like a red company, a blue company, and a green company. We were in the blue company, um, and you know that that was something that we were doing. You get like seventy five bucks a show, but you might only have three or four shows a month. So you really have to try to supplement your income. Yeah. And then you go to the other side of the building at Second City where there was this corporate division and they would do corporate shows. We would do shows for companies like uh, Motorola, um, you know, that kind of thing. And we would, you know, write a corporate show. We would take a Second City scene and then force in, you know, a message that the company wanted or whatever. And it was just basically a corporate thing. And there's a lot of writing in that. Yeah. Um, and then Second City, we had a little radio show as well, which was, I think we got paid for that. And that was something that was something that also helped doing a lot of writing for them. And then I really wanted to do the main stage at Second City. I'd done the ETC, and I had just gotten hired for the main stage, and SNL uh, had offered me a writing job at that point. I had submitted for it, not thinking I would even come close, and I, I got an offer. And I ended up, uh, I ended up turning it down. I ended up saying, you know what, Second City's something I really wanted to do. I didn't want to be a writer at the time. I had started out as an actor. I'd been an actor for ten years. How hard age. a decision was that, uh, or was it not hard at all? Like no, turn down no. SNL because it seems like a lot of people these days would jump on it right. over Second City. I think, it th or that they're getting into Second City with the purpose of getting onto SNL. But I, I hadn't done a resident show at Second City, which was really important to me. Okay. And I figured, well, SNL will be there. And I went to New York and I interviewed for the job. I met with Mike Shoemaker, who was the producer. And uh, yeah, they offered me the gig, and I just I, I said, you know, I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna wait because I I thought oh, I don't want to be stuck writing for other people. I really wanted to, you know, I really was more. I thought that was a bad thing at the time. Okay. And I also, this, the big reason was I wanted to do the Second City thing. So I ended up doing the Second City show, and I ended up doing four shows for them. And then I, I felt like I had got, I had had my fill. I felt like I had gotten everything I wanted to get out of it, and I had a very good experience there, and I was really happy I did it. And right at the tail end, I quit Second City in the summer of 2001, and that same summer, Dick Basucci, who was a producer at Mad TV, had come and seen me in another show I was doing at Improv Olympic, a scripted show that we had adapted. And um, he offered me a job to write for Matt. And I thought, well, you know, Mad TV is certainly no second city, but, you know, L.A. is something I always wanted to do, too. And I thought, I'll do it. So I, I ended up taking the job. I was also out of work at that point. Uh, but thankfully, only out of work for a couple of months. And then... Um, from there, I moved from Chicago to L.A., and I did Mad TV was my first TV job, and I did it for three seasons. Okay. Um, which, your three seasons, which seasons were Well, I did it for another two seasons after that, but the first three were seasons seven, eight, and nine. Okay. Um, so it was uh, the end of uh, Alex Borstein's tenure. Okay. She, I think she, her last year was my first year. Will Sasso was there for a year with me. Uh, Mo Collins was there for a couple of years with me, Michael McDonald, of course, mm -hmm. and then Jordan Peele and Keegan, you know, who I had known from Chicago, came through there. Yeah. Uh, 
So yeah, those three years, and then I went to SNL. Then SNL offered me a job again, and this time I took it. This time I took it because my contract was up with Mad, and I had, um, and I did S uh, SNL for two years, two thousand four and five. Um, and uh, and Mad TV was kind of wrapping up around. Uh, no, no, now. they would go on for another like five years, I think. After you left. I think so. Okay. I, I'm trying to remember when they finished. I, I want to say they were like season 14. Oh, wow. I think when they were done, or 15, potentially. Okay. Um, and, yeah, then I went to New York for two years and had an interesting experience. I didn't love it. It really wasn't my, wasn't my style of comedy. It really wasn't. Like, I feel like everything that they were writing was too, it was a television parody. And if you, when I was watching the show, I felt like everything I was seeing was in the context of a television show. Yeah. You know, hi, welcome to the Blank Show. My name is Blank. Yeah. Here's my co-host, Blank. Yeah, I mean, there were so many, the Blank Show. Yeah. And I think that was in the, in the 2000s, that was a big thing. Yeah. Um, in the 90s, SNL was a lot of, it's Blank Boy, it's Blank Man, it's yeah. Blank Girl. And I don't know, I just, I couldn't click in with them in the way that I, that was, you know... I feel like I, I clicked more at Mad, and, and even though, you know, a lot of what was Mad TV, which was these zany, off-the-wall things, I didn't write. I wrote a lot of the, you know, the one in ten things that were more subdued, you know, um, what more was, character, not not so crazy character-driven. Okay. Uh, what was, uh, how long were you at SNL? Uh, 2004 and five. Okay. Uh, what, because I've listened to a lot of podcasts and heard a lot of different writers and performers on the show talk about the atmosphere of that show, um, and you've already said that the that writing wasn't necessarily what you were, you know, digging, so to speak, uh, but what was the, the atmosphere of working on SNL like? Well, it was very high energy, a lot of excitement, um, a, lot of, a lot of money. I was really impressed with like the money they would spend, and you know, after being three years of Mad, where everything was like, well, I got a wig at home, I'll bring it in. You know what I mean? <laughs> was like, it really? No, not, not that bad. They did have some budget, but I mean, the money SNL would spend, which was insane, insane. Um, I'm, I'm going to say a number that I think is probably wrong, but I had written a thing. Right, which I was, do that all the time. Which was a parody of the uh, Super Bowl Shuffle uh, video. So the wardrobe department wanted the actual, authentic, so they ordered all these vintage Bears jerseys, took the numbers off individually, and then re-sewed on the numbers so that they matched. Because in the vintage, you can only get like Walter Payton. Right. But they got the vintage jerseys and, you know, Mike Singletary or something. And uh, just the jerseys alone cost like $9,000 or something like that. For this one sketch, just the jerseys. Just one sketch. Wow. Um, yeah, just the jerseys. Yes. Wow, Jesus. Um, but I mean, overall, it was. Uh, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I did it. But it was. It was not for me. It was not what I. I wish it was for me. I mean, I. I like the exposure it gets, but I don't know. There's. There's a tone and an energy there that does not do what I think the show should be doing, which I think is to, you know, elevate and lift people and make them, you know, aware. I feel like SNL should be the punk rock, you know, young, we're going to change the world kind of energy. Yeah. And it's a lot of, uh, it doesn't. 
It doesn't. And, and not, the performers on there are very talented, but I don't want to watch, you know, just silly impressions and, you know, catchphrases um, as much. But the environment, you know, behind the scenes is very exciting and, you know, it's a thrill because you grew up with that show. So to be there is very high energy, exciting, and certainly in many cases high pressure, high stress, and sometimes high annoyance, you know, because, you know, you'll write something that doesn't quite fit with, you know, the status quo, which I think is, is you know, going out on a limb, I say too, too, too ridiculous and not, I don't know, you think of what they're known for, like all the big things it's like lately, and maybe I haven't seen it in a while, but like sweaty balls, you know, dick in a box, it's like... Is this what we want right. to? Is this what we want to take the you know the the best and brightest people? And this is what we're going to give back to the world. Yeah. You know, not that at Mad TV we were changing the world either, but I still felt like you know there was a more human idea pushing that show. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Okay. Uh, did you do you have like a, a favorite sketch that you may have gotten on the air at SNL? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I had one where I, I might have mentioned this to you the other day with uh, Snoop Dogg where he was a rapper in a rap battle okay. um, and he kept winning all his rap battles because he was in a wheelchair and all his raps talked about the fact that he was in a wheelchair. Okay. So the first guy had like this really great rap and then Snoop's rap was just, you know, talking about um, how he was in a wheelchair and how he should win and he kept winning out of sympathy. Okay. Um, and I'd done a few of the monologues there, and I had a, a sketch called Hot Plates, where it was a restaurant where all the plates were, were extremely hot, um, which is a very prop-heavy sketch. Yeah. I think Hilary Swank was in that. Okay. Um, and I had a couple of things with De Niro, which was pretty fun. Yeah. Robert De Niro is a cat lady, and then a, a mafia scene with him. I'm trying to remember... But, you know, just an amazing experience. You get to work with so many, you know, ridiculously famous and talented people, you know. Was there anybody during your time there that you worked with previously, whether as a writer or a performer at the time? Sure. Tina Fey was an old improv friend, and we had worked together, and she was the head writer at the time. Yeah. And uh, Rachel Dratch I had done Second City with. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember. This is going back a few years. There. Do you keep in contact with any of them still? On occasion, not as much, but no. uh, I talked to Dratch not too long ago. Um, I sent her a message uh, not too long ago because I'd like to get her. I don't know what she's up to as far as teaching she, or anything she, goes. She had a baby. Yeah? She had a baby, so I think she's pretty busy with that. Yeah. We traded some phone messages. Yeah, I'd like to get her out, maybe do like an improv workshop, get her doing something like uh, something in Philly like that. That would be nice. She had somebody contact me. Something, I guess it's an agent or something. Uh, haven't heard back since. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, okay, so and now you are on, uh, you're a writer for Team Peel. Yes, flashing forward. I did a few other shows. Are we leaving stuff out? Is there, is there Oh, any? no. Well, I did do a few other shows that you probably never heard of. I did Dave Keckner's show, The Naked Trucker, Trucker and Show. Yeah, the T-Bone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, a show called Frank TV. I uh, know Frank Caliendo. We talked yes. about that. Opened up for him in college. And what, where did you open up for him? Uh, DeSales University. And he was, he was, was he nice to you and everything? Yeah, he was great. Uh, we sat for a little while after the show and traded impressions and That's good. Uh, talked about, you know, different techniques and stuff like that. And yeah, he was very nice. Did you have a different experience with him? Oh, no, he's great. <laughs> okay. He's a great guy. I felt bad for Frank because I felt like the show that was being written for him was not 
very good. Yeah. And I made that clear to the producers. I said, this just isn't really, I don't think we're giving him what he needs. He's like, you know, I think the premier impressionist yeah. of our time. After, yeah. after you, of course. Oh, of course. Uh, of course. <laughs> and I just felt like we were giving him, like, B sketches. I thought the material needed to be, like, just really, really strong, and it just really wasn't, wasn't very good. This was on TBS, right? Yeah. I remember and because TBS, they yeah. played those commercials. I wrote all those. Oh, did you? They, yeah. they, they, were, they played so often. During the no no nothing bad about the commercials just the fact that they played so often during the uh, baseball. baseball playoffs right. yeah I, so I'm in often. one of them too I think there's one where I can't remember who I I, I play a slate guy I want to say it's De Niro one of Frank's impressions and I I play the slate guy like I'm giving I'm doing the slate and he puts his hand in there or something mm-hmm. um and then after that I did uh, I can't even remember. Anyway, then I did tonight. Did the Tonight Show for a year. Yeah. Worked for the Tonight Show with with uh, Leno. Yeah. Um, How is it writing on a late night talk show like that? Um, it's, it's also not really my cup of tea. I'm glad I did it, and I had some really fun experiences. And also, some of my Tonight Show stuff is on my website as well. Okay. Um, so you can see some of the stuff I did there as well. But like video. Uh huh. There's okay. some video on there. Yeah. Um, under the video section. Um, it was good, you know. I I learned a lot about uh, writing jokes. Um, I hadn't really spent that much time writing monologue jokes, and I learned a lot. There's some tremendously talented monologue writers there. Um, John Mack and uh, John Max and uh, Larry Jacobson, just some like really great, great old school monologue writers, and. You know, I, I never read the news so much. I was reading like three or four newspapers a day, and the rest of the time I was watching 24-hour news. Yeah. I listened to the radio on the way to work. You know, it was just a great experience. Um, wrote a ton of jokes. I would write, you know, between 20 and 30 jokes a day, and then you're also writing bits. But again, I thought there was a big gap between my sensibility and Leno's, um, and you know, the prevailing sensibility of the show. You know, just a very different. Idea. I felt like I would write things and I had to explain it to them, or they didn't understand where I was coming from. Um, yeah. I had pitched this one video that I had made to them, and I thought maybe we could reshoot the video, where it was like a chicken wing commercial. And it was based on a real commercial, and it was like uh, these people think they're eating gourmet chicken wings, but they're really eating Wing Street wings from Pizza Hut. And then you cut to the people, and the chef comes in and says, "Hey, these are Wing Street wings," and the people beat the shit out of the guy. <laughs> yeah. You know. Um, and Leno was like, well, if they like the wings, why would they beat the guy up? You know, so it was like, oh. Right. Yeah, they like the guy. Actually, to do a Leno impression, you just have to do Sharna Halpern with a lisp. Yeah, that's, Sharna, that's, Sharna talks up here like yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. So if you just add the lisp, you got, you got, you got Leno right there. Um, anyway, um, but I, I'm glad I did it. I had a great time and I met some great people and had some good experiences there. But after the year, I didn't, I didn't go back. Um, and I was going to go to film school after that. That was my next idea because at this point I wanted to do, I wanted to make more of my own stuff. A lot of it came from, you know, having your stuff produced and going, oh, that isn't quite what I thought. Yeah. And I wanted to try my own hand at making things. So and I started making a lot of videos and short films and little things like that. And then film school was just cost prohibitive. I didn't want to spend the money. It was like forty grand a year. Um, which is pretty heavy duty. Yeah. So I um, I just started making some things, and I wanted to make some things that were a little bit longer, and I took about a year to do that, and uh, I'm still doing that. And then 
at the beginning of this year, yes, Key and Peel called as they got renewed for their second season. Um, they were able to bring in another writer, and uh, they brought me in. Uh, do they do they do that? Do they just call, uh, or was there a submission? Oh, yeah. Like, do they have an agent that submitted something, or are they just like, uh, no, let's get this guy? I got an email from Keegan that said we want to talk to you because you knew them back in oh, Chicago. Yeah, I've known Keegan since uh, Second City, okay, in Chicago. Yeah, and I'd worked with him at Mad, so I mean, right. I, and I had a lot of great times. Keegan and I wrote a lot of fun things on Mad that were yeah. a lot of fun. Um, so I had a lot of good experience with him and Jordan, of course, as well. Yeah. Um, okay. So just very solid guys. So yeah, they called me. I think it was on a Wednesday in February. They called me and they said, "We want you to come in and talk to us." I went in on Thursday or Friday, <laughs> and I started that next Monday. Wow. So you know, and I think a lot of the gigs. We're talking about this the other day too. If you do it for a while, you know, the agents don't give you the gigs as much as, you know, it's because, oh, I knew this guy or this guy, yeah. you know, wanted to bring me in. Frank Caliendo hired me to work on his show because he knew me from Matt, yeah. you know, so I think it goes goes like that. Yeah, it was, uh, it might have been on the, on the last Getting Close with Mike Marbeck podcast uh, where I think it was maybe Rob Banowitz, uh, one of the guys here, who brought up a quote. Might have been Stephen Colbert. I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't remember my own podcast very well, apparently. Um, but said, you know, when you get through that door, you could either close it or you can hold it open for all your friends. Uh, and it seems like a lot of improv people are holding that door open, which, I, of course, fits the whole philosophy of support and, you know, making each other look good. Um, so, yeah, I guess that does make sense that that, that phone would just ring one day for you. Uh, were you working at the time? Um, just on my own stuff. I, I, I wasn't working for anyone else at the time. Okay. Uh, a few quick things before we get to some questions from the, uh, from the uh, internets. Uh, I do, you were at the show last night. Here's Johnny. Uh, Great show. By the way. <laughs> thanks. Excellent. Really liked it. Uh, is there anything, because I haven't written a show like that before. Um, like as far as monologues or anything goes and it's kind of writing to a specific style of course but any tips for writing for a late night show uh, like writing a monologue is there anything that you learned from doing Leno uh, that for these guys that you say are classic monologue writers uh, that is something some tip if not no worries I think the tip would be just to do a lot of it I mean, if you want to be a big bodybuilder, you have to pump the iron. Yeah. And if you want to be a good monologue or joke writer, you have to write the jokes. And there's no shortcut. There's no other way to do it. So, you know, you sit down with a newspaper and you scan the paper and you look for things that strike you. And I think, you know, your jokes are meant to point out a gap in logic or point out some flaw or quirk. You know, that's what you're trying to point out, you know, hopefully in a clever way. And you seem to do just fine. I thought all your jokes were very good. Good. You know, you know what you're up to. So, I mean, that's it. You just got to keep doing it. And, uh... You know, unfortunately, with the Tonight Show, you know they they do make a lot of the same jokes. Sure. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, what uh, What about in general sketches? Is there any tips? Because uh, there's a uh, a growing sketch community in Philly. Um, is there any tips that you have for for a 
someone that wants to start writing sketches and maybe some a group that wants to start forming or wants to start doing shows? Anything you could say to any growing sketch people? Yeah, and I, and I talked about this a little bit in the sketch class that we did this weekend. Yeah. Um, it's a process, you know, and I, you have to go through the process which is, you know, I think for me and everybody will have their own process, their own way of doing it. Um, I have an idea sheet that I keep on my computer. So, and I have like a lot of different files. I'm sure you do too. And you, how are we doing? No, we're good. You put your, um, you start with an idea sheet. And, you know, every time I revisit my idea sheet, I might add a few more ideas underneath an idea that I already had. You know what I mean? So, um, if I get a few premises together, um, every time I revisit to add a new premise, I might look through the other ones and try to add a little more. Mm-hmm. Then once you feel like the idea is a little bit more fully formed, then you sit down and write the sketch. And then once you know you've got the sketch, then you can edit it. You can't edit a blank page, you know. So I think writing that first draft is really helpful. And then it's a process. You know, sometimes sketches will go through, you know, six or seven rewrites before it gets shot, you know, for a TV show. So I'd say just don't be discouraged. Just keep working on it. Keep changing it. Keep trying to tighten things up. There's so many little tips and tricks that you just learn for yourself as you do it. You know, I remember early on learning things like, oh, you put the joke at the end of the line. You know, you don't want to have the joke and then have the actor say more things. You want to land on the joke. You know, little things like that little tips like uh, don't use the same word three or four times in the same line, you know, or on the same page. If it's a, it's a big word, they might catch the ear. It's kind of a really obscure tip. But, you know, just I'd say just keep doing it. It's a process. And if you're working with a group, you know, then you can all help each other. Everybody brings in material. You read it together. You revise it. And, you know, just keep, uh, keep trying to make it tighter and better. Okay. Uh, through the, the workshop that you did at FIT, uh, which had a, a, a pretty decent sampling, uh, and I'm sure the sampling is more representative of what's out there overall. Uh, is there anything that kind of kept popping up? Any issues that kept popping up that you addressed, um, or any you know good pros or cons? Well, it was a six-hour experience, so there's really only so much you can do. Sure. Um, you know, it's very tough to get into a ton of stuff, and there were seven writers in the group so I ran it like a writer's room where uh, and there were no huge issues I mean at this point even and there was a couple people that were pretty new to it um, in the group but at this point everybody knows sketches so well it's not like it's a completely foreign concept at this point people understand about setting up the premise playing for a few pages and then having a twist and getting out of it coming up with an out um there were no real issues that you know kept coming up, but what I really did notice is that a lot of the material that we came up with, and we, we, we did a, a brainstorm, a pitch, everybody wrote, sent me the material, like formatted everything, then we did a read-through and notes. And that's like the beginning of the process. Then you would do another read-through, more notes, another read-through, more notes, until you're done. Um, but I was impressed with the fact that a lot of the material was not that far from like professionally produced stuff. So I, I don't think it's, you know, I think everybody's in good, in good shape. I good. Think a lot of good stuff. Awesome. Uh, hopping quickly back to Key and Peel, uh, you mentioned several times how different things were not your cup of tea uh, and how SNL wasn't exactly hitting that sort of punk rock sort of 
thing. Uh, is Ian Peel closer to that for you? Yeah, not that I am a punk rock kind of a guy. Right, I'm sure. just saying, like, to me, that's what SNL was about, you right. know, in a certain sense. You know, Elvis Costello playing the song he wants to play. Like, there's that riding the edge, not Paris Hilton hosting the show. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. But to go into Key and Peel, it's very much my cup of tea. Um, the thing that distinguishes Key and Peel for me from a lot of other sketch shows, Keegan and Jordan are also executive producers on the show, so they're able to kind of gu lovingly guide the show. Ian Roberts and Jay Martell are the other two executive producers. Ian, of course, from UCB. Jay had done a lot of work with uh, Michael Moore and a lot of other shows. So these are very, very talented folks. Um, the brain trust is relatively small. The executives seem to really have a lot of respect for Keegan, Jordan, Ian, and Jay, which I think is a nice, nice thing overall. And then the other thing is, I think that Keegan and Jordan and, and the other producers make very tasteful choices. Um, I know a lot of comedy shows I've worked on, they'll say, eh, it's funny, you leave it in. If it's funny, you don't cut funny. You know, you have this old school way of thinking. Like, but really, you know, I don't want to have a meal that's just full of every flavor in the world that's not good, you know, it's not tasteful. Like, you want to have just the right amount of this, just the right amount of that. And a sketch that I had written um, that'll be airing in the Halloween episode of Key and Peel, um, which was a zombie sketch, which is going to be really fun. Uh, Kevin Sorbo, who played Hercules, <laughs> yeah. is in it. Oh, I know Kevin Sorbo. You know Kevin? I know Kevin. Yeah. That's great. How do you know Kevin Sorbo? Uh, I don't mean know him, know him. Oh, I just you know, know him. him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're butts. Oh, I thought you were yeah. open for him or something. <laughs> Um, but there was a, in that sketch, and I, I was there for the taping of it, and uh, the, the makeup department and the wardrobe department had made, you know, all these different zombies, and they also made a rabbi zombie, which was, you know, funny, of course, you know. And uh, in, the, in the shot that revealed all the zombies coming up the street, the rabbi zombie was right in the middle. And Jordan was watching the monitor, and he goes, you know, is that too much? Is that too jokey? And Keegan was like, you know, I think it is. And then the next time they did it, they put the rabbi a little bit further back. He was still in there. But to me, that was like a big, you know, good, excuse me, a very big good sign that they're going to be okay. In the first season being any indication, you know, they have so many wonderful sketches yeah. that are very smart and very, um, very well done. And they yeah. really want to, you know, That's make it. tasteful That's choices. It. Bitch. <laughs> it's insane. It's insane. Uh, I love it. All right, I'm gonna hop to uh, some quick questions from the uh, from the internet. Uh, let's see what we got here, and then we'll get you out of here. Oh, I'm all good. All right. This is from Matt Holmes. In a writing room like SNL or Mad TV, or I guess Key and Peele, can you say that one person wrote a sketch or is it usually a group effort? Um, and then which sketches are you most proud of or least proud of and why? Uh, we talked about most proud a bit. Um, in a writing room like SNL or Mad SNL. TV, Key and Peele, can you say that one person wrote a sketch or is it usually more of a group effort? Which it sounds from talking to you, it's more of a group thing after you put that idea out there. It can be. I think sometimes... Uh it can be a little bit of both, but for the most part, the room, well, it depends, because like at SNL, there wasn't a room. We didn't really sit as a room and write. Um, at Key and Peel, there was very much a room. You come in in the morning, you pitch your idea, and it bounces around the room, and then you take all your 
you know, then you as the writer are responsible to go off and write it based on, you know, what things you liked from the room. Mm -hmm. At SNL, there wasn't a lot of kicking around. You would pitch, but the pitch was very informal. It was in Lauren's office with you and the host. And I think it was just more to make the host comfortable. In many cases, people wouldn't even write up what they had pitched, yeah. you know, in the, in the room there. Um, and many shows have different processes. And sometimes you do just go sit off and write something. You go by yourself. You go with another person. Um, at MAD, there was also not a big group pitch. It was you would just you'd pitch to the head writer. And you say, and I might want to get Mike to help me write this, or I'll have Bill help me write that. Um, so all, all different process there. I know this is a multi-part question. Uh, which sketches are you most proud of or least proud of and why? We talked a little bit about that already. Yeah, uh, I the mean... The sketches you've got on. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you're most proud of the sketches that, <laughs> that work. <laughs> yeah. You know, where the stars align and come together. I mean, you, you want them all to be good. And you want them all to be great. Um, you know, I'd ha I'd, and I don't really think a lot about... I don't sit and watch old sketches, you know, I don't really think a lot about the things that I've written, I'd have to go, like, look back through, but at MAD there were many, I try to think, there are many fun things, and there are many things, like I wrote something with Keegan and Jordan, another writer named Tammy Sager, who's now um, on How I Met Your Mother, um, and the four of us sat down and wrote something at MAD, Keegan, Jordan, and me and Tammy, we had the best time writing it. We shot it, and it just didn't work. Yeah. It didn't work. I'm, I'm still, it's not that I'm unproud of it, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think the things I'm least proud of would be things that, you know, Ian Roberts often says writers have to write from inspiration. And I think I'm least proud of the things that were assignments or I didn't really connect with because you really can't give those things, you know, I have a hard time giving those things what they need to to fly, so yeah. I think I'm least proud of those, or I try not to write too many of those, you know. Okay. You try to just write things you, you really connect with. From Kevin Pettit, does improv inform your writing process, uh, and if so, how? Does improv inform your writing process? Yeah, I think so. I think you use, I mean, improv is storytelling. It's a different kind of storytelling. It's, Oh, sorry, i got to feed my baby. <laughs> uh, Im improv does inform writing because improv is storytelling. It's just a different moment-to-moment -moment storytelling. So um, I don't know if I can point out exactly how those two things help each other, but as an improviser, you're, you're constantly you know, focusing on, well, what happens now? And how do I make this a big finish? And where do we take this now? A lot of the same questions you ask yourself when you're writing something. In improv, you just have less time to... Ponder it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. This is from Matt Nelson. You, Dassey, and Khaki all studied directly with Dell. Do you find that shared experience specifically adds anything to your trio? I think so, in the sense that we kind of got our marching orders, which was to treat everything with the most respect and the most, you know, the highest level of. Uh, intelligence that you can bring to things. I think all three of us want to do that. I don't think, I think the three of us, if we find ourselves making cheap jokes, we feel ashamed and dirty. And uh, I think that's definitely, I think that, that helps us for sure. Okay. Uh, from Mark Leopold, uh, can sketch comedy be a legitimate inroad to a writing job in television or movies these days? Oh, uh, definitely. Definitely. And even more so now. I think you have such a huge opportunity with the internet 
many people are getting television shows based on their improv and sketch groups on the internet. You know, they have a YouTube thing that goes viral, or they have a, you know, something on Funny or Die that goes viral, or whatever. I think the, uh, it's all wide open. You know, I, my big overall advice would be just do the work on whatever level you can as best you can. Even as I was in between jobs, I didn't stop working. Um, if I wasn't being paid to write by a, a television show or a network, I was working with my friends on things. I produced um, a short uh, film series, which is like a six-part series called The Bank Manager, which I shot uh, in my hometown and, and some more interiors in Los Angeles. Um, that's also on my website, if I can plug that. RichTellyRicker.com. That's right. Okay. And um, so, you know, I just wanted to do, do, do this work on whatever level I can, as best I can, always, you know. So if, if you're not being paid to write, keep writing. Um, keep revising your stuff, keep getting it ready, and, you know, it's a process. You're always doing it. Okay. Uh, and the last question I have for you is uh, you were, you've been around Chicago in some of the earlier days of that of that scene. Uh, you've been in New York, you've been in L.A. Uh, is there any advice you have to Philly comedy in general, be it improv or sketch, uh, that could maybe help uh, the scene as it kind of grows? Well, I think it's exciting, and I think Austin has a similar vibe, and maybe Austin's a little further along than Philly, in my, for my two cents, in that I think there, there's a lot theaters that have popped up and more work is going on so you know I'd say just keep the fire going um, keep doing shows and you know thanks to guys like you and Greg and all the great people at Fit you're doing it you know you're getting the projects going and this team will spawn that group and that group will spawn that theater um, I'd say for the Fit you know which would be great is to try to keep your players at the Fit you know, you want them to stay there and help build you guys. Because as you're giving them experience, you don't want them to go off and, you know, create the theater across the street, right. necessarily. Um, but yeah, to just keep doing it. That, that's what gets it done. And the encouraging thing, the exciting thing about, you know, cities that aren't New York or L.A., and Chicago, to a certain sense, you know, I think is also fits, fits in with New York and L.A. In that, I think in some of those cities, people are doing it to get on TV. They're doing it to get SNL. They're doing it to get Second City. The thing that's cool about, you know, Austin, Boston, Philadelphia. Austin. Austin. <laughs> Austin. Um, is that people are doing it because they love it. You know, and, yeah. uh, and that was the incubator idea in Chicago. I mean, in the early 90s in Chicago, no one was getting hired for anything out of the improv scene. Yeah. And, that, and people were doing it just for the sheer love of doing it. And yeah. I think that's, that's really important. So let, let the love of doing it, you know, keep you going. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all I have. Uh, thanks so much for, one, coming to the show last night. Glad you enjoyed oh, yeah, it. Uh, for coming to Philly to do the workshops. Uh, everybody had really awesome things to say about it, and I hope to get you back out of here again soon. Me too. Uh, and maybe you. for a show next time, uh, next time as well. Uh, and thank you for sitting down with me, and thanks for getting close with Mike Marbeck. <laughs> a pleasure, Mike. Thank right. you. Thank you. Well, that'll end another episode of the Getting Close with Mike Marbeck podcast. That was Rich Tallarico, which you were just listening to. Uh, I don't know why I say that. It's the end of the podcast. You should very well know that. Um, but maybe, maybe you didn't. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you listened to the entire thing uh, without seeing the title or listening to the intro. 
and were surprised to hear me say that it was Rich Tellerico. I don't know. I don't know how you listen to podcasts. I don't know your life. Um, but in any case, I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank Rich for coming out to Philly to teach uh, the two improv workshops and to teach that sketch workshop bank. That was my terrible Dennis Miller impression, once again, rearing its ugly head on the Getting Close podcast. Uh, I want to thank him for allowing me the time to pick his brain about some things for uh, your enjoyment and my own on this podcast. Uh, he had a lot of really cool things to say. Um, also want to thank him for coming to my show. Here's Johnny. He had a lot of really good things to say about the show. So the next time it comes around, you should go to it. You know where you should also go? To his website, richtalarico.com. You can see videos, pictures, uh, see where he's going to be next, a whole bunch of stuff. So go to richtalarico.com for all things Talarico. Uh, I don't know who is, uh, who, who is going to be on the podcast next time around. I don't really have anybody lined up at the moment, uh, though there is the possibility, the, uh, awesome possibility. There's been some Twitter, I'll just say it, there's been some Twitter tweets, some tweets going back and forth. There's a man coming to town. Uh, who I tweeted at, hoping to get his attention and get him on the podcast. So I put it out there, and he got back to me and said that he would do it. Uh, that man is Greg Proops. Greg Proops has been on both versions, American and British, of Whose Line Is It Anyway, and also does his own podcast, The Smartest Man in the World uh, podcast, or as he calls it, Proopcast. Um... And that would be awesome. That would be such a friggin' personal thrill for me to be able to do that because I grew up kind of watching Whose Line Is It Anyway, not really knowing what improv was uh, and not definitely not knowing that I would be doing what I'm doing now. So he was a, a huge inspiration, him and, and that, that entire cast of the British version because they used to play it over and over and over on Comedy Central because they, had, they pretty much had Whose Line and E! News Daily... E True Hollywood Stories, and, I don't know, absolutely fabulous. Pretty much over and over and over, all the time. So I would watch them and friggin' die laughing at each each one. Uh, so to get him, it would be great. Uh, he sent me a tweet back that just said, Sure, absolutely, come by the club. The club being Helium, but I don't know when. I don't know when I'm supposed to go by, so hopefully he'll get back to me. Uh, I, I, I tweeted at him for some specifics. But if, it, if that doesn't happen, I'll be a little let down, sure. Um, but it was an outside shot to begin with. So hopefully hopefully that'll happen. Otherwise, I hope to get um, another awesome Philly personality. And that may be a bit more attainable. Uh, until then, I'm Mike Marbach. Well, no, I'm always Mike Marbach. But, uh, yeah, thank you for listening. And thanks for getting close.